Well, the last two sermons, I've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and we've examined some very, very hard sayings. Virtually everything that Christ taught his disciples in this session, and we are his disciples, so it is us too, virtually everything he has said here has been absolutely contrary to human nature. Uh, What he did was give them a sermon and tell them, don't be the way you are, be like your Father in heaven, and like him by extension as well. (coughs) Because as human beings, our reactions are carnal, they're fleshly, they're human, they're selfish uh, in virtually every respect. So what he is doing here is telling them, here are the attitudes and the approaches and the thoughts that you ought to have, and none of you have them. (laughs) Just like by nature, none of us have them either. So we came down to chapter 7, where I'll pick it up today, and I think we can finish this up today. Uh, One more chapter to go. He starts this one by saying, Judge not, that you be not judged. Now, what does that mean? The Greek word there is krino, K-R-I-N-O, it's number 2919 in Strong's. And let's look at the definition of krino, or judgment here. It starts out with the first definition, to distinguish. To distinguish between, you might say, uh, good or evil, uh, And then it goes on to say, that is, and defines what they mean, to distinguish, that is, to decide mentally or judicially. In other words, a judgment or a distinguishment that you make or a decision just in your mind or uh, as a judicial thing, by implication, to try, condemn, or punish. So we could put in there, try not, or condemn not, or punish not, that you be not condemned or punished. And here are the ways that it's used in the King James Version and other places, because uh, it's the same word is translated many different ways. Here are the ways it was translated in other passages. I didn't look them all up, but... Uh, They give it in uh, the PC Study Bible. It's used uh, as avenge, to conclude, that is, make an assessment, condemn, damn, decree, determine, esteem, to judge, or go to law to sue, ordain, call in question, or sentence to uh, make a uh, punishment, in other words, or even to think. So it has a broad range of words that can be used somewhat as synonyms, I guess you'd have to say. So he says, don't do this, whichever word you choose to translate it, that you be not done to like this. And I think we could probably fit all those words that I just used uh, into this passage, because basically what what he's saying, he explains in verse 2. For with what crino, or judgment, or or any of these words, condemnation, uh, trying, suing, uh, determining, decreeing, sentencing, whatever, For what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. So substitute any of those synonyms you want in there, and whatever you do with any of those to someone else is what will be done to you. That should give us quite a bit of pause to think about ourselves and what our reactions to others are and how we treat others and how we judge their motives their attitudes, what we think they think, what we think they did, what we think ought to be done about it, we have to consider very, very carefully because however we come down, wherever we come down, 
with our attitude, our thought, our judgment, or whatever, of someone else is exactly how we will be treated. What goes around does come around. And if it doesn't, in the course of time by nature, God will cause it to come around in his due course when he sees fit. Vengeance is his, and he will take it. With what measure you meet or put out, it shall be measured to you again. So, whatever synonym you want to use, it doesn't really matter the exact, perhaps, translation here, because it has a broad, general meaning of any thought, any approach that we take towards someone else is the way God is going to approach us. Now, to me, that's scary business. Because think how easy it is to think ill, to think evil, to impute motives, or whatever, to other human beings. To say they're lying, to say they're misrepresenting, to say they're sinning. Uh, we have to be careful. Because whatever attitude, and it isn't this whole sermon mostly about attitude. He starts out with the attitudes that we ought to have, the approach we ought to have. And here, he's beginning to nail our hide to the wall with it. Uh, you know, whatever attitude you have toward someone else is the attitude I'm going to have toward you. How many times should I say that and try to put it in different ways for us to internalize it, to get it, to understand it, and to realize that it's actually going to happen. That's why we have to guard our minds so carefully, because here it says not only judicially or as a, let's say, a firm judgment, but even mentally, the thought. Remember, we're to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. Now, sometimes we think evil and we say evil, Sometimes we think evil and we manage to hold our tongue, but it's real easy to think evil and no one else know it but God. And he is the one who says, I'm going to treat you just like you treat other people. If you make severe condemnation or severe judgment, that's what you'll get. If you make light judgment on them, that's what you'll get. Isn't that fair? You know, how can you argue with that? I've seen parents, when their kid would pull their brother's or sister's hair, the parent would jerk, reach over and jerk their hair. <laughs> how does that feel? Or maybe one of the kids bites the other kid. So mom or dad grabs their arm and bites them right back. Whoa! And in a sense, it goes right back to an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? Only it's God who does the eyeing and the toothing. He tells us, don't be that way. You've been told that's the way it was, but here's what you're supposed to do for each other. Forgive, show mercy, and so on, and leave the vengeance up to him. He is the one who decides how you ought to be treated based on what you do with others. So, just know that whatever it is you allow yourself to think about others and say about others and do to others will come back on you someday. Verse 3, Why behold you the mote that is in your brother's eye, but consider not the beam that is in your own eye? So he goes on to expand on this thought. We make mountains out of molehills, with other people's things, but with our own, we turn mountains into molehills. We discount our error, our sin, we find ways to justify it, so we turn a mountain of sin, or a timber as he puts here, into a twig, <clears throat> when we're talking about our problems, 
But when we're talking about somebody else's, we'll very quickly turn a twig into a tree trunk. So he says, why do, you, why do you do this, he says. Why do you expand what you think he is, how evil you think he is, and you shrink how evil you think you are? There's carnal human thinking for you. Just the opposite of the way God says that we are to be. Or how will we say to our brother, let me pull out the mote out of your eye, and behold, a beam is in your own eye. So we go around trying to clean up somebody else's little problems, and we don't deal with our big problems uh, all too often. <coughs> and he says, if you do that, you're a hypocrite. First cast out the beam, the timber, out of your own eye. Then you shall see clearly to cast out the mote out of your brother's eye. So he may have a speck in his eye, but if you got a, a log in yours, you're not seeing things clearly. You can't see past. You may think you can, but you can't. I think he's really saying here is that we don't have much cause to try to straighten out our brother. Uh, because we all have so many sins and so big a sins and so many attitudes that are contrary to what we've already read about in chapter 5 and 6 that we have a long way to go before we can come to the point that we think we can cast the mote out of somebody else's eye. Remembering how he started this section. Whatever you say about him, whatever you think about him, is the way I'm going to think about you. <clears throat> so be very, very careful. Who made us the judge of anyone else? God is our judge. But boy, we're very quick to judge others, aren't we? So very, very quick. We let ourselves get into that situation. We're getting ourselves into trouble with God is what we're doing. But that's what people do. That's Why do they gossip? Well, they want basically to show that they themselves are righteous or at least better than the one they're talking about. So it's a matter of comparison, basically. And he who compares himself with others is not wise. Why do you compare yourselves among yourselves, he says? It's just not wise. Well, why isn't it wise? Because you're going to make yourself look better than you make the other person look, and then God is going to come down on you and say, wait a minute here. <laughs> I'm going to have the same attitude you had toward him. We need to be very, very careful in making any condemnation or judgment. How often do we impute motives that aren't really real? We think so-and-so is doing such-and-such because of what we think they're thinking. And you know, very often, they aren't thinking what you think they are at all. That's just what you think. And if you live in a fantasy world trying to judge and read other people's minds, which you can't do, you're getting yourself in trouble. Only God can truly read minds. I have had people think I was thinking things sometimes, and that was the furthest thought from my mind. Other times they were right on with it, <laughs> you know. But uh, you have to be careful because you may not know. You think you know, but you may not. And I haven't gotten enough beams out of my eye that I feel like I can get after anybody else. Now, in the position I'm in, I have to make some judgments at times, but I have to be very, very careful and think them through. And sometimes when I have to make hard decisions that affect people's lives, I take weeks, even months, going back and forth, considering the Scriptures, praying, trying to determine what God would want done. There have been some junctures in life, like leaving CGG, where I took months of praying and thinking and studying 
to make up my mind whether that had to be done or not. And there are other issues that have had to be made, or decisions that had to be made, and I don't do it very quickly. Now, if I can very quickly see something in the Bible that says we've been doing something wrong because we just misjudged it, sometimes those decisions can come pretty easy, pretty fast, by examining the Scripture and saying, well, that's what it says, let's do it. But when it affects our direction, our focus, uh, where we should be headed, I take a lot of time on that. And sometimes I go back and forth, and I may seem wishy-washy to some when I'm in that mode, but once a decision's made, we go with it. And uh, nothing wishy-washy about it. Time to move. But decision-making, well, it's just like the proverb says, uh, answer a fool according to his folly. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. Now, that sounds like an absolute contradiction right there together. How can that be? Do and don't. Well, it just depends on which fool you're talking to. Some fools need to be handled this way, and some fools handle that way. And having the wisdom and the discernment to know how to answer or not to answer a fool uh, takes some judgment. Solomon came up with a very good one when he offered to split the baby in half. The fool that wasn't the mother got found out in a hurry. So sometimes it takes some analysis to decide what kind of fool you're dealing with. <clears throat> Verse 6, Give not that which is holy to the dogs, neither cast you your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Now that can be looked at quite a few different ways. We certainly need to do it in a personal way. Uh, and often we have done, we've contradicted this, we've gone the other way. And it seems so right to us. Let's say we were fairly new in the church and are just learning the truth and we were so excited about it. And we decided we'd tell our relatives and our friends, even our mates, about it. And boy, did they trample that under our feet and turn and rend us. So even on a personal level here, and of course this is all very personal, we have to be careful because God has given us a great deal of understanding just by understanding the basic truths that we learned in Worldwide Church of God. There's a lot we hadn't learned yet, but what we did learn, most of it was true. And it was, for the most part, correct as far as it went. But any time we tried to voice that off on anybody, uh, they usually didn't like it because they're simply carnal-minded. God had not opened their minds. And, you know, sometimes you think maybe God will open their mind, so you kind of throw a few things out and see what the reaction is. And generally, he's not calling them. He just wasn't back in those years, just like he's not today and even less so today. So if you try to put truth out there, uh, it's, it's not going anywhere. I'm around people sometimes that just simply do not understand God or the Bible, for that matter, and I try to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> I'm not going to push them because I know they're going to reject it in the first place. So why even bother? Just keep it to myself and let God take care of things. Now, I think this in some ways is why we've been instructed right toward the end time uh, not to even go to the world. For instance, he tells the two witnesses specifically there in Revelation 11 that they are not to go to the world, but they are to go to the church, examine the altar, the ministry, and those that worship therein, but leave the court of the Gentiles out. Now, Herbert Armstrong had a different calling. His commission or calling was to call many and baptize people of nations around the world, which is what he did. But his job was not the final witness to the world by any means. He's been dead 30 years, and that hasn't happened yet. Uh, 
So that wasn't his commission, wasn't his job. But it is given at the end. But notice that at the first, it tells the two witnesses, whom we're looking to see soon, I think, that they had to go first to the church. It says, you know, leave out the Gentiles. Don't even tell them. Get the church squared away. Then, later in the chapter, it says that they will preach to the world, and that the world will finally kill them. Uh, they will give <laughs> the truth to the swine, and they will be trampled. But in the meantime, they're told not to. Now, why? I think that's a good question for us to ask, because sometimes I have an emotion that is, tell people what's going on. They need a warning. Well, God doesn't do things except he warned by his servants, the prophets. And I have to conclude that what Herbert Armstrong said and his son, what Worldwide Church of God said, was enough of a witness for this nation that God can judge them on what they heard. Because that broadcast went out 24 hours a day, all across the land, and even around the world for the most part. And even though he did not get into the prophecies much, Herbert Armstrong uh, told them the right kind of attitude to have. In a way, he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount to the world. Give instead of get. They couldn't even swallow that much. See, they rejected that. The kings did, the mayors did, the governors did. All the people that he went to see rejected that give-get message. Why go any further? <laughs> if they won't accept that, why do you need to tell them more? The world is still on a get-get-get-get-get mode and attitude. Greed and materialism. Worldwide. Now, I remember Herbert Armstrong when I was a kid going through Jeremiah and Ezekiel and some of those prophecies. He'd go back there and he would say it uh, and warn this nation. Well, they didn't pay any attention to that except for a few that he was calling, that God was calling. And then later on, he got on that very soft message of give and get, and they didn't hear that. And if he had told them about the holy days, and all these other things that we should be doing, they would have trampled it in the mud and turned and rended it, wouldn't they? Yes, they would have. So I think all in all, God gave a fairly soft message, and they wouldn't hear that, so he didn't give them anything much stronger. What did Ted Armstrong try to get across? While he irritated me at times when I thought he ought to be preaching the gospel, he was talking about, is there a God? Uh, and he used platypuses and whales and honeybees and all kinds of things to try to get across that there really is a true, real God. Not just a phantom or a cloud or a ghost, but a, a real, living God who did the creating. Did the world begin to really listen to that? Not on your life. Well, what does Ezekiel say? He says, all these things that I'm saying here is that they may know that I am the Lord. Now, isn't that, in a gentle way, what Ted Armstrong was preaching over the world tomorrow? Well, yeah, it is. Well, they didn't get it. So God gave them enough of a witness that if you're not going to listen and believe I'm the Creator, then I'm not going to give you any more. You'll just trample it. Now, the church needs to know. But how do you reach the church? Now, we could take a message to the church right now and tell them they ought to keep the Sabbath. Well, they already know that. We could tell them they need to keep the holy days. Well, they already know that. Telling them things they already know wouldn't be any kind of a witness or a help to them at all because, hey, we already know that. So I tried, we tried, with a few things. 
I sent out the Passover paper to every address, both individual and church-wise, we could find. And in the order of the Passover service itself, sent another paper along with it about that. And it was the truth. It was absolutely true. It was absolutely according to Scripture. We had been wrong all those years. So, we sent them something that they didn't know. And boy, it was amazing how quickly they turned it around and said, boy, I can see that's in Scripture and that's correct, and we're all going to keep Passover the correct way. You know better than that. <laughs> we didn't get response from any of them. None. It's on the website. They want to go there. They know about us. They all know about us. Believe me, they do. Daryl Henson and his stupidity out there in the desert and the bad reputation he has throughout the church for a lot of things. So they know about us. But they're not listening. They're not watching. They're not going to the website and saying, I'm, you know, I think I will look into that Passover thing after all. No. Now, the attention of the church is not going to come until God does some things to show who he is and where he is working. That's when it will show. Read Zechariah 3. It says, the eye, seven eyes will be on one stone. There at the end of Zechariah 3. Who is the st chief cornerstone? Who is the rock? Who is the great one? That's Christ. And the eyes of the seven churches are going to turn their attention there to what God is doing when he begins to do the signs and wonders of Zechariah 3. And they won't turn their eyes to anything that you take them until then. You won't have their attention. It will have to be Christ who gives, does what needs to be done to get their attention. And then 90% of them are going to reject what he is doing. So right now, when we tried, when we sent the Passover out, paper, what did they do? They trampled it underfoot. Like swine would trample pearls into the ground. Now those were pearls of wisdom from the Bible in those papers. And I believe with all my being they were correct. We have not sent them a paper on everything we've learned since we've been here, or before we even got here, things that I began to understand and learn that God had opened up and revealed. Our experience was, they're swine, spiritually, <laughs> and they will turn and rend, and they will trample the truth into the ground. So now, is this not only a message for us as individuals being careful who we tell what we know, but it also was it written to the disciples who would become apostles to be careful what they said and to whom? Now, maybe God wanted Stephen to go ahead and let it all out and cast the pearls that he understood about Christ before the swine, but what did they do? They stoned him into the mud. So that's generally what happens. <clears throat> now, the apostles were there at that time to put it in people's face. That was part of, their com part of their commission at the time, just like it will eventually be for the two witnesses to put it in everybody's face. But we need to be sure we get the right focus at the right time, that we understand what our commission is. And that's not always easy to discern. Herbert Armstrong lived his whole life, church life, spiritual life, thinking he had one commission which he did not have. He never discerned in all those decades what his true mission really was. It is only as an afterthought or 2020 looking back that we can understand that he wasn't there to preach the gospel as a witness around the world and then the end would come. He, thought, he said that over and over and over again. That was the purpose of the church. And it wasn't at that time. What he did do 
was Matthew 28, 19, and 20. He went to the nations. He made a calling. And many were called into the church, and now few are being chosen from those that were called. And the two witnesses are still ahead of us. The Elijah to come was not Herbert Armstrong. He died. He did not restore all things. He restored some things, but not all by any means. He never knew where the promised land was. He never knew the true Zion. He never knew where Jerusalem is or was. He never knew how to keep the Passover properly. He never knew a lot of things. And he never knew his own calling. But God caused him to fulfill what he had in mind for Herbert Armstrong to do, in spite of the fact Herbert Armstrong didn't really know what he was doing. <laughs> now, is God great or not? He could cause him to get it done. And then he could cause us, 30 years later, to know what he did, and know that the thing he thought he was doing is still in the future. He told me, as I've told you several times in 1981, that he was Zerubbabel. But he never did the things that Zerubbabel was to do, at least not the final fulfillment of it. And he did a minor type of it. So he never really knew. So we need to, we need to know when to do what. And that takes a lot of study and thought and prayer to grasp what God wants us to do. And if he tells the two witnesses, don't go to the world, and they're not even on the scene yet in any visible way, then why would we, in between Herbert Armstrong and them, try to do something he tells even them not to do? So when I have emotions that say, well, why don't I write a letter to so-and-so? I might read an article he's written on the Internet or something. And it's clear he doesn't stand... Uh, it, one issue that comes up in my mind, for, for example, I, I hear people saying, well, why isn't America in prophecy? America's not even mentioned. Here we are, the greatest nation on earth, and we're not even mentioned in the Bible. And, and my mind will say, write them a letter. Let them know who America is. But they're not only Ephraim is a nation of God, they're also the great Babylon and the great whore of Revelation 18. And prove it to them, which I can't easily do. But God says, don't cast those pearls before swine. <laughs> they, they won't listen. They won't hear. They won't understand. Don't bother. So I bite back my emotion and say, no, the message right now is to the church. Who is Matthew 5, 6, and 7 written to? His disciples. It wasn't to the multitudes. He found a place apart, and the disciples came, and he taught this only to them. If the crowd began to gather, they might have heard part of it. But it wasn't who he addressed. Just as right now, I'm trying to address church people, not the world. They're not going to understand Matthew 5, 6, and 7. They read it in the Methodist, the Baptist church sometimes, any of the churches out there in the world. They'll read the Sermon on the Mount. They'll refer to it about how lovely it is, but they don't understand it. They don't understand that their thinking is not spiritual, that it's carnal, and therefore they're not getting it. Do we get it? These are hard sayings. <clears throat> Verse 7, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. So, if there's something we don't understand, that we don't get, then we're supposed to be looking for it. Looking hard. Asking, seeking, knocking. For everyone that asks, receives... And he that seeks finds, and to him that knocks, it shall be opened. I wonder how many people, when Worldwide broke up, really grabbed the Bible and began to search and try to find the answer as to why it all happened the way that it did. Most did not, I guarantee you. Most simply moved over a state or six, and started another group 
and went on doing exactly what they'd been doing up to that point. Now, if God blew it apart, he had a reason for that. Wouldn't it be incumbent upon us to seek and ask and find the reason that God did that? I think more would have found that answer had they done what it says here. And the answer to a lot of other things, for that matter. It's a principle. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? I never did with mine, did you? Kids said, I'm hungry. What did we do? Give him a stone? No. Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a snake? I don't know that I ever gave my kids a snake even. Certainly not to eat. I might have handed them a garter snake, I don't remember, but uh, certainly not to eat. So he's saying, look, when your kids ask you for something, they're seeking something, they're hungry, you feed them, you take care of them, you nurture them, you protect them, you keep a shelter over their head and warm clothes and food. I'm the same way. So, look, seek, ask. If you then, being evil, wow, I wonder how many Protestants have ever focused on that. They think they're wonderful, they think they're saved, they think that they've got it made into the kingdom and that life's easy, and you don't have to work at it because you're under automatic grace as soon as you accept the name of Jesus, and therefore life's easy. Not hard at all. What did Christ say? Who's, who's he talking to here? He's talking to his disciples who are to become apostles. If you then, being evil, do most people look upon themselves truly as being evil by nature? No. We like to think of ourselves as good. Our neighbor may be evil, but we're certainly not. If you, being evil, human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. That's evil. Our thoughts, our carnal human nature, just being a natural human being is an evil condition. We have to be taught from the time we're newborns not to be selfish and greedy and lustful and angry and uh, pitching fits and uh, all the things that kids do because they have an evil nature. You being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? He says, I love you more than you will love kids ahead of God sometimes. But he loves you and me and our kids more than we love them. Is a no. Overall thing. Verse 12, Therefore all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's what the law, the Old Testament, and everything the prophets had to say was all about. But whatever you do to someone else is what you would have them do to you. Think about that. Is that the way we are? No, that's not the way we are by nature whatsoever. We want people to be nice to us, be kind to us, support us, compliment us, thank us, be nice to us, give gifts to us, whatever. We want them to do really, really nice things to us. But well, we're certainly willing to lambaste them, stab them in the back, gossip about them, lie about them, impute motives to them, uh, judge them, condemn them, try them, punish them. We're quite willing to do that with everybody. That's why he wrote all this stuff. Is that we are to come to have the attitude of wanting to be treated, or wanting to treat them exactly the way we want to be treated. That's all he asks. He says, you don't have to treat them or like them or love them more than you love yourself, but as much as.
Well, there's sometimes I don't like myself very much. Ah, I found a loose brick. If I don't like me, I certainly don't have to like you either. <laughs> I think that's a little twisting of the Scripture there. No, we we are, and by nature we do, want to be treated kindly and carefully, but that isn't our natural reaction to other people. And he says, that's what it's all about. That's a hard saying. And he goes on to say that. Now, most Protestants think that Christianity is a, it's a breeze. It's a snap. It's easy. Accept the name of the Lord, and you're saved, and everything's good. And even if you sin, it really doesn't matter because you're automatically forgiven. Is that what we've been reading in these chapters? I don't think so. All right, what does he say then? Verse 13. Enter you in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Let's look at that word straight there. Uh, in the uh, Greek, it means narrow, straight, or narrow. But it means narrow in the sense of, it says, from obstacles standing close about. Now, if you're looking at a mountain, and you see a broad, easy, not hard to climb path, uh, say a low pass, that's where you choose to go. For the most part, when people build roads, they will go through the less elevated areas, They'll go through the easiest path to build that road so that there's less earth moving and fill that has to be done. Uh, they'll take the lowest, broadest, easiest route, even if it means doing some curving around, to find the easiest, simplest, cheapest way to get the road built. And that's the way people approach life. Notice he says, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads to life, and few there be that find it. Now that's interesting, based on the Greek definition, which is makes it narrow or hard to see. But it makes it hard to see because there are obstacles standing close about. Not only is it a narrow canyon, a narrow way. But it may have rocks and other things obscuring where it even is. I've never really looked at that this way until I looked at the meaning again this morning. I've done it before, but I never really saw that obstacle thing. You know, no man can find the way unless the Father draws him. In other words, the path to righteousness, the path to the kingdom of God, cannot be found unless God shows where it is. It just can't be. There are too many obstacles in the way. It's, it's, uh, there's too many. Why did Christ speak in parables? So they could not understand that they, that they might be taken and snared and deceived. The parables are not written, were not given by Christ to make the meaning clear and simple for people. Most people think that's why the parables were spoken. He used simple farm language so everybody could understand. I've heard that all my life. What did he say? He said, I have spoken parables so that I'd be taken and snared and deceived. That it would be hard to find the truth. It will be difficult to understand what he really meant. He wasn't trying to make it simple. There are obstacles in the way of the true way of life. Very difficult to find. It's not just that it's narrow so it's hard to take or hard to do. It's that it's obscured by obstacles to the point you can't even find it. But now what about the way that most men go. Broad is the way. Easy. Wide is the gate. Now, what do people do? 
if they see a whole lot of people going through a wide open, easy area, everybody's going that way, they don't even look at the hard way. They just go the way everybody else is going. Like living's off a cliff. Because that's what everybody's doing. How many times have you heard that excuse? Everybody does it. Well, that's just the way things are. That's our society. I'm just doing what everybody else is doing. Well, that's easy. That's broad. That's simple. Wide is that gate. But narrow is the way that leads to life, and it has obstacles in the way that you cannot find unless God opens your mind to it. And it's just too easy. How did Herbert Armstrong always put it? Any old can fish can swim downstream. Current's going that way. All the other fish are swimming that way. But it's hard to go uphill, to go upstream. Hard to find that way. We have the term straitjacket for people who are, let's say, mentally challenged or insane, as they used to say. Now, this is the spelling for that kind of straight. <clears throat> A straitjacket meant that it's hard to move. It's hard to get anywhere. You're bound in this thing and your arms are tied down and you may be in a padded cell with this tight, hard-to-move jacket on that keeps you from being dangerous to yourself or others. That's what a straight jacket is. It's not spelled like a straight like an arrow, S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T. The straight jacket, S-T-R-A-I-T, the same is used here. It, it is an obstacle, an, an impediment to your moving around is what a straight jacket is. And God is saying that going the narrow, ruddy, hard, difficult, straight, narrow, difficult way, hard to, hard to get movement in a, in a righteous direction. It's easy to go the wrong way, and that's what most people do. So if you think Christianity is an easy chore, read this and think about it. Then he says in verse 15, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits, what they actually finally produce. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? You know, a false prophet, based on what this says, does not look like a false prophet. Okay? A false prophet's going to be saying things that are insane or crazy or sound awful to you. But he says, a false prophet usually is going to come with wool on. <laughs> He's going to look like a sheep. He's going to try to act like a sheep. Now, sheep are innocuous basically harmless and easily led uh, for the most part. And a false prophet is going to look as much like a sheep as he possibly can, but inside he has a different agenda. So a false prophet generally is going to be someone who comes with great subtlety. He's going to come acting kind, acting nice, easy to believe. He'll have a way about him that can draw people in because he looks like a sheep. But inside, he has goals and purposes that he wants to do. Now, I've seen that in my lifetime. I've seen it fairly recently where people can be really, really nice and they just seem so kind and so sweet and so persuasive. And to look at them, you'd think they were a sheep. But then you find out that dividing and pulling away is what the real agenda down underneath truly is. So there's somebody that can come looking like a sheep, but they have purposes. Why would anybody who is godly, 
Why would anybody try to destroy something that someone else has built? Somebody builds a house. Why would you come along and try to burn it or tear it down or get a backhoe and smash it down? You wouldn't, would you? Not normally. If you're criminally insane, you might. <laughs> but most generally, if somebody builds something, you respect that they built that house and you'll leave it alone. When God builds a house, Satan sends adversaries to try to tear it down. Tearing down is of Satan. Building is of God. That's just the way that it is. God created the universe. God created the world. God created human beings. He is a builder, a maker, a creator. Satan is a destroyer, someone bent on tearing down, killing what someone else has built. That's what he tried to do with the throne of God, was tear it down, destroy it, and remake it in his own image. Anytime someone is seeking to rearrange, destroy, rebuild what somebody else has done, is in a satanic attitude. Now, if they were in a godly attitude, they would leave alone what somebody else has built and go build something on their own. Because God is a builder. He is not a destroyer. Satan is the destroyer. So anytime you see someone in any way trying to destroy something that has been built on another foundation, you better do a teeth and tail check, not just look at the wool. Check for teeth and wolf tail. You don't know. You look at the tree, to use that analogy, and if you don't know the leaves real well, you don't know what kind of fruit it's going to produce. So sometimes you have to wait and see if that produces peaches, apples, or or what? And the same is true of someone who comes in wolf's clothing, and you have to wait a while to see the teeth. But eventually they'll show up. Well, you judge by the teeth and the fruit. <clears throat> Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. Is the fruit that comes on that tree something that is good for people? that helps them grow, that helps them build, that helps them be more like God? Or is the fruit something that puts them in hateful, bitter, angry, frustrated, accusative attitudes? You judge the fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. That's eternal judgment, ultimately. If we produce anger, bitterness, frustration, accusation, destructive attitudes, let's say, we'll be hewn down and cast into the fire. And even if we're treated with evil attitudes, hateful, accusative attitudes, we do not have permission in any form or fashion to return that attitude on anyone else. We have to love our enemies and do good to them that persecute us and despitefully use us. We've just read that last week. What's our carnal, natural reaction? Fight back. Smack them around. Return evil for evil. God says, do not do that. It's up to him to judge, to condemn, to try, to punish. Not us. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. We'll be known by our fruits. Let's make this personal to us. How do we react? doesn't matter whether we've been accused truthfully or by lie. Peter made that very clear. If you're accused and you didn't do it, be patient. If you're accused and you did do it, be patient. <laughs> Either way. 
Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's just contrary to Protestant teaching. It says all you have to do is say, Lord, not even Lord, Lord. Just accept the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. He says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. He's beginning to summarize this sermon now. He's told us all the attitudes we ought to have, every one of them common, contrary to the way we normally think. And he says, these are the way you're supposed to think. These are the attitudes you ought to have, the reactions you should have. The reactions of God, not carnal human nature. And then he begins to wind it up by saying, I've told you all these things. I've told you how you ought to react, how you ought to think. Usually just the opposite of what you are thinking is the correct way. And then he says, He that does the will of my Father, not just hears it, not just listens to it, not just reads Matthew 5 and 6 and most of 7 and says that's nice and goes on thinking the way he thinks and reacting the way he reacts. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Haven't we been saying the things that are in the Bible? This could even have to do with people in the church. Haven't we read the Bible? And in your name have cast out devils? And they may have in some cases. And in your name done many wonderful works. And then while I profess to them, I never knew you. You thought you knew me. You thought you were doing wonderful works. You thought you were casting out demons. You thought you were preaching in my name. And I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. That was exactly the boat the Pharisees were paddling, wasn't it? They thought they were looking to the true God, the God of Abraham. They thought they were prophesying and teaching right. They thought they cast out devils in God's name. And he said, I don't know you people. <laughs> You're not doing what the law says. You're not following what God is and does. Depart from me. I'll have nothing more to you do with you till you accept these disciples, the church that I am founding. And they haven't yet, and they're still disfellowshipped. That's just one example. Therefore, therefore, whosoever hears these sayings of mine, and we just heard them, and does them, I will liken him to a wise man which built his house upon the rock. Well, it doesn't do any good to just hear this. I'm just flapping my jaws in vain unless we, that's you and me, take this seriously. Sounds good. These are all good principles. They're fine. But if we don't start thinking the way he tells us to think here and acting the way he tells us to act, then it doesn't do any good, because he says in verse 25, The rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock, the rock, Christ. And every one that hears these sayings of mine, and does them not, shall be likened to a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain came down, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, when worldwide began to come apart, false teachers arose, who sounded good, who sounded sweet, who sounded nice, but they didn't do what God says here. And how many people had built upon sand because they were not doing what Christ says here. They were hearing, but not doing. So when trials, troubles, tribulations, difficulties, false doctrines, whatever, came along, they just washed their spiritual house away. And not many are surviving. 
So what's it going to be? We're going to hear these three sermons. I've gone through Matthew 5, 6, and 7 before. So have many other ministers. I've done it in this congregation before. Did it change anything? How much did it change? Maybe it sounded good. But did we really begin to change our reactions to people and what they do to us? Did we really begin to get rid of our self-righteousness and not impute motives and accusations and gossip? Or have we been gossip mongers? Have we been backstabbers? Have we heard it, paid no attention, stumbled across it and then picked ourselves up and ran along as if we'd heard nothing? When will it do some good? Now, we face some crisis right here on this property. We faced all kinds of difficulties and accusations and so on. Are we going to react carnally? Or are we going to act, react spiritually? We have a beautiful opportunity right here to react as Christ would react. To be kind, to be gentle, to be loving, to turn the other cheek, to give coat and cloak. To actually do to people who, in some cases, proclaimed us as enemies. By action, if not in word. How do we react? Godly? With the attitudes that are lined out here? Or still carnally and selfishly? It's up to us. I bet we haven't done it perfectly so far. I bet we've reacted somewhat carnally at times. All of us. Well, here's a good chance to change that. I want whatever you and I build to be on the rock. To be the way he thinks, the way he reacts, the way he tells us we are to react. And it goes against us, doesn't it? Isn't it sometimes hard to give and to do good to people who would do evil to us and speak evil of us? Yes, it's hard. But he says our reward is in heaven. And he said in this very sermon, don't look to things on this earth. Put your treasure in heaven. Have the attitudes of Christ and the Father. He says, now, you've heard this. If you do it, Great will be your reward, and the rains and the troubles and the trials and the tribulations will not tear your house down. But if you react to accusation and hate and anger and bitterness and all those things with the same attitudes, your house is going to fall. We've got to take the high road. We've got to take the road Christ and the Father walk and actually internalize all of these things. You know what? You need to go back and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 fairly regularly. It's real easy to forget what's here. It's real easy to react carnally because the carnal mind is enmity to God. And straight is the way and the gate and narrow and obstacles is the way to life. But broad and easy, carnal, human, natural way is the way most people go. And you and I have gone that way way too many times. So it's time to kind of straighten ourselves up and get out of our self-righteousness and love people as best we possibly can. So, just because we went through this again, don't forget it. Go back and make it your personal Bible study fairly often. Because this is... This is the very foundation of Christianity right here. It's, it's the foundation Christ laid with his disciples when he first began to teach them. This is it. And everything else in the New Testament is either a repeat of this or a reminder of this in one way or another. This is bedrock. This is foundational. This is his first teaching. Here's the way you ought to be. This is Christianity at its very finest. So we need to look at it, review it, 
internalize it frequently because it's so easy to forget it and begin to act carnally. Let us move to acting spiritually. That's what God wants of us. We're part way there. I don't know how far. <laughs> Not far enough, I'll guarantee you. So let's think very deeply and pray very deeply about the words of Christ here. Because the foolishness of preaching does us no good unless we internalize it and do something about it and do these things that Christ told his disciples to do. Then we'll be blessed and our house will survive and we'll be part of the kingdom of God.